Amen. 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 Thank you, Grant. We are going to uh, dismiss the kids. I know Miss Jessie is in the back waving right now. So Children's Church, that direction. Bye, y'all. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. Don't turn there, just listen. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Prepare the way for his coming. That is our theme for Palm Sunday 2019 as we launch together into Passion Week. Looking forward to both Good Friday and next Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection. Prepare the way of the Lord. When I say that, do you get a good picture in your mind of what that might look like? Prepare the way of the Lord. What does it mean to prepare the way for him? The imagery that Matthew uses in that statement comes from the custom of clearing the road and preparing a town for the arrival of a king. Just like today, when the White House has to go out and make plans to, the president decides to travel across the country across the, or across the world, there's all kinds of preparations that have to be made. When an ancient king traveled anywhere, he would always first send out messengers to proclaim that he was on the way. Now, why would he do that? So that he could draw crowds, so that he would be lauded and praised for his stature and for his victories and all the things that went with being an ancient king. It was an ego thing and very common back in that day. And because they didn't have professional road crews back then, they didn't have Caltrans. How many of us love Caltrans? Sarcasm alert. Because they didn't have professional road keepers, when the townspeople heard that the king was coming, they would go out there and they would fill in the ruts and the potholes and they would clear away the rocks and the debris from the road so that the king could come through in a smooth way. This was standard operating procedure to get everything ready for the coming of such an important person. And that is the meaning that John the Baptist intends to convey, get ready because the king is on his way. Now, Palm Sunday is always special because it's a day of anticipation. It looks forward to what's coming. We think about what it would have been like to be present on that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. It's interesting because we know the end of the story, which makes it all the more interesting, but to be a fly on the wall when he came into town, to be a part of that vast crowd, to feel the energy buzzing in the streets, the whole city literally quaking as he arrived, to be in that crowd and maybe just catch a glimpse of him riding by on that donkey, to hear some in the crowd who were shouting these messianic words at him, save us, Lord, to hear the rest of them saying, well, who is this guy? Palm Sunday whets our appetite for what's about to come, what's about to happen. It reminds us in just a handful of days that we will gather once again to observe and honor the Lord Jesus Christ for the great sacrifice that he's made on our behalf. A time when we, we literally force ourselves to look and recall the horror of the cross, the spectacle of it, the place where his body was broken for us, the place where his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Palm Sunday reminds us that one week from today, we get to celebrate our salvation with great joy, right? As a church family, we get to rejoice in the vindication of God's son, the fact that he rose from the dead, showing him to be exactly who he claimed to be, Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. 
We get the privilege of coming together to declare this truth with one voice, that death has been swallowed up in victory. As you can see on the screen, our theme for Passion Week this year is the Lamb and the Lion. And each one of those biblical titles represents a distinct aspect of Christ's ministry. On the one hand, his suffering. On the other, his rising in victory. The atonement that he makes on one side and the judgment that he brings on the other. So what are we going to do this morning? Catch us now. We're going to prepare the way of the Lord in our hearts by avoiding the New Testament altogether. We're going to look at the Old Testament to see what it has to say about Palm Sunday, to see what the Old Testament has to say concerning the lamb and the lion. So grab your Bibles. I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 39. Isaiah chapter 39. It's been too long since we've been in the Old Testament, right? Two or so, two plus years in Romans. Let's go back a little bit. Now, the book of Isaiah is one of the most intimidating books of the whole Bible. Wouldn't you agree? It's so long. It's so detailed. It can be so confusing at times. But, friends, it's so important to our understanding of the gospel. So even when you're intimidated by it, we need to dive in. We need to study this book. In fact, it's one of the reasons why it's one of the most often quoted books of the Old Testament by the New Testament writers. Fifty-five times the New Testament writers quote from the book of Isaiah. Now, even a basic outline can help us catch the flow of Isaiah's writing. So I'm going to try to walk you through uh, sort of an outline of Isaiah and look at a, a, a particular concept in less than 15 minutes, okay? So just a couple, some of you guys have studied the book before, that's great, but just the simplest of outlines can really help us. So the first 35 chapters of Isaiah are all related to judgment, judgment. In fact, the simplest way to view the prophecy of Isaiah is really to divide it between two books, the book of judgment and the book of comfort. So judgment is the theme of the first 35 chapters. And this judgment is first upon Israel and Judah, and then second, around the surrounding nations, the people groups that surrounded Israel, every nation from Babylon to Egypt. And tucked into these prophecies, between verses 7 and 12, God begins to introduce us to his promised Messiah. This is where so many of the famous Isaiah passages come out of, verse chapters 7 through 12. Here's just a sampling of what the Messiah is called in those chapters. He is called Emmanuel, born of a virgin. He is a stone of stumbling to Israel and Judah. He is a light that comes out of Galilee. He is a child that will be born to us, one who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is a righteous branch from the stump of Jesse, upon whom the Spirit of the Lord will rest. He is a king who will sit on the throne of David, one who will rule with justice and righteousness forevermore. He is a divine judge who will strike the earth and slay the wicked. And finally, he is the Holy One of Israel. All of that is tucked into those chapters right there in the midst of judgment. Isaiah provides us with some of the most descriptive and beautiful language of who this Messiah will be, of who this Jesus of Nazareth will be. Now, when we arrive at chapter 36, the subject of Isaiah's prophecy changes. At chapter 36, he begins to speak into a very specific historical situation that he was an eyewitness to. It happened in Isaiah's day. And this is the story of the Assyrian invasion of Judah when Hezekiah was king in the land. 
It's a frantic story. If you know the story, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, brings his massive and deadly army all the way across the ancient Near East, and he begins to destroy all the towns of Judea, and he begins to threaten Hezekiah in the city of Jerusalem. And we know the story ends well. God faithfully delivers Hezekiah. He delivers the city of Jerusalem from certain death. But at the end of chapter 39, there's this very ominous chord. Look at verse 5 in your text. Isaiah 39, verse 5. God says to King Hezekiah through his prophet Isaiah, he says, Behold, look, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to where? To Babylon. How much will be left over? None of it. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And so at the end of this chapter, there's very little hope for, for Israel and Judah. There's very little hope for the line of David. Isaiah prophesies that God's people are headed for 70 years of exile in Babylon. Why? Because of their sin, because of their spiritual adultery. And it's this point in Isaiah's prophecy that a major shift takes place. What we do is, at this point, we close the book of judgment and we open a different book, the book of comfort. And this is the precise moment when the Messiah comes back into view for Isaiah. And as we turn the page now to chapter 40... What happens is we've fast-forwarded through those 70 years of exile. Those 70 years happen between chapter 39 and chapter 40 in Isaiah's prophecy. So look at chapter 40 now. Look at verse 1. We see a, a completely different mood in Isaiah's words. Comfort, he says. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare... And really a better translation of that is her labor or her service. And Isaiah is referring to this time of exile. Call out to her that her labor has ended. That her iniquity has been removed. That she has received of the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. So Judah has spent 70 years in exile in captivity in Babylon being cleansed. And God says now that time has ended. And her iniquity's been removed. And now that Israel's time of distress is over, God makes this mind-blowing promise to his people. Look at verses 3 to 5. Again, we're in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Does that sound familiar? We just read it, didn't we, in the Gospel of Matthew. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here's what's going on here. This is a promise that the Lord will return to his land. From Babylon back to Jerusalem. Make way for the king, Isaiah says. Smooth out the roads for God is on his way. His glorious presence is going to once again take up residence in the rebuilt temple as it did in the golden age under David and Solomon. Not only that, but God will muster all of his power and might to rule his people and to care for them. Look at verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him like a shepherd. Don't you love the language? Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. So we have a beautiful picture here of God restoring 
Judah to the land. This is all great news, but before we get to any more details, God still has some business to do with his people. Chapters 41 to 47, scholars say this is basically God taking his people into what they call a poetic courtroom. God is going to declare through a series of evidences that he is the sovereign Lord of history. What he wants to do is prove to his people that he is the sovereign power behind all that they have experienced. Exhibit A in this courtroom is the fact that just as he promised, he would free his people from Babylon. He would raise up the Persians and a particular king by the name of Cyrus who would conquer the Babylonians and send the people back to the land. That, folks, is a miracle. That the Persians would, would be able to defeat the Babylonians and then turn around and say to the Jews, go back to your land, is an absolute miracle of God. Exhibit B is the mocking of Babylon's false gods and the, the demonstration of his power and justice because God says, I have brought justice to wicked Babylon, just as I promised. And so the point of chapters 41 to 47 is that God has been faithful to his people. First of all, he's been faithful in disciplining them. Now, we don't like that part of it, do we? But when we sin, God is faithful to discipline his children. He was faithful to discipline them. He was also faithful to restore them, and he was faithful to bring justice ultimately to the situation in administering that justice to wicked Babylon. So he brings this evidence to the people. Now, this should have changed them. This should have gotten their attention. They were eyewitnesses to God's faithfulness. They had seen the way it was, that God had sovereignly worked in this situation. So surely, as they came back to the land, they would hear all this evidence, and they would say, Oh, Lord, we want to be loyal once again to you. We want to obey you. We want to be faithful. Unfortunately, no. That's not how they respond. And all of chapter 48 then is dedicated to making the point that Israel still, after the exile, is a stubborn and stiff-necked people. And so God declares in verse 48, 6, that he is now about to do something new. He says, I'm about to do something that has been hidden from you from the foundations of the world. Turn over to chapter 48. Look at verse 16. Chapter 48, verse 16. This is another turning point in Isaiah's prophecy. We're about to hear a new voice. A new person is entering into the conversation in the midst of Isaiah's prophecy. Chapter 48, verse 16. Come near to me. Listen to this, God says. From the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Well, who's this? Who speaks with such authority alongside Yahweh? Do we not see three persons there? The Lord God, a person that he sent, and his spirit? Folks, this is a Trinitarian formula in the Old Testament. This is amazing stuff. What's being described here is a person whom the Lord is sending on a particular mission. And this is going to be the point of chapters 49 to 55. The servant of the Lord. God's servant. And this servant's mission will be directed first to Israel and then to all of humanity. A light to the nations. A gospel is coming to the world. Good news. Chapter 52, God commands Israel to wake up and to pay attention. He literally says, wake up. Pay attention. He says, shake yourselves from dust. Rise up, O captive Israel. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck. Pay attention. 
for something great is coming. God will send his servant to Jerusalem. Go over to chapter 52 and look at verse 7. God is going to send his servant to Jerusalem. And the news he brings is life-changing. Now you should recognize these first two lines from our study in Romans chapter 10. Isaiah 52 verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together. For they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see, all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Now that is awesome stuff. The the picture being drawn here, not only is Zion going to be restored, but it's going to be lifted up so that all the nations will see it. And they will see salvation. Now, how's that going to happen? This is the question, right? This is a great promise, but how is this going to happen? I mean, is God going to send a mighty Davidic king with a great army, with chariots and horses and siege machinery and all that stuff? Is that what's going to happen? If that was the expectation of Israel, they were about to be disappointed. Because what follows this promise in chapter 52? What follows? The story of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. The great and very famous poem of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Will he be a king with an army? Is that how it's going to be done? Quite the opposite. Now, most of us have read Isaiah 53, at least heard it read, maybe at the communion table where it's always so appropriate. It's a powerful description of the pain of torture and crucifixion. But even more than that, we sense in the words of Isaiah the immense agony of God's servant as he takes upon himself the punishment for the sins of the world. It actually starts towards the end of chapter 52. Look at chapter 52, drop down to verse 13. This is really where the suffering servant poem begins. Behold, my servant will what? Prosper. How will he prosper? He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. The picture being drawn there is of a coronation of a king before God. This suffering servant will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. In verse 15 it goes on, he will sprinkle many nations. The the word there for sprinkle in the Hebrew is, is the same word that's used of the sprinkling of the blood at the altar of God. The blood of Christ will sprinkle many types of people across all nations. And in astonishment, it says, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. And yet look at the verse in between there. Look at verse 14. The appearance of this servant is marred and disfigured. Obviously from being struck and whipped and tortured. Turning over now to chapter 53, look at verse 2. Notice that even before he was disfigured, Isaiah says that he was insignificant in his appearance. There was nothing about him that looked impressive or important. He certainly didn't look like a stately king leading an army. As you picture what that might have looked like, what a a classic king on on a big war stallion looks like, that's not the picture 
that we get of Jesus. There's nothing impressive about how he looks. Verse 3 says, he is despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows. Imagine for a second Jesus being arrested by the Romans, taken away from his closest friends, the isolation, the loneliness that he would have felt, now all alone, isolated with Roman soldiers, being slowly picked apart by his enemies one blow at a time, despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows. But the beauty in the midst of it, really what is a horrifying portrait of torture, is found right there in verse 4. Look at it. For God's servant is going to endure this suffering, not for no reason at all, but with a very specific purpose in mind. Our griefs he will bear. Our sorrows he will carry. For our transgressions he will be pierced through. For our iniquities he will be crushed. The punishment punishment that brought us peace is going to fall on him. And by his deep and painful wounds, many will be healed. And then the biggest shock of all, friends, look, this is the will of God. This is the will of God. It says so right there in verse 6. God caused this to happen, didn't he? He sovereignly decreed, ordained, and brought it about. In fact, in verse 11, it says it pleased God to do this. To crush his own servant. Why? Isn't this hard? Isn't this difficult to understand? Some opponents of the gospel claim that this makes our God out to be a monster. A masochist. One who who enjoys inflicting suffering. But the opposite is true, right? This is actually the very definition of love. A love that the world can't possibly understand without the Spirit. If you keep reading in verse 11, Isaiah tells us why it pleased God to crush him, so that he might be rendered as a guilt offering. That's why. So that he might take our place and take the punishment that we deserve and make atonement for my sins and for your sins. That's why. And this is is the only way it could have happened. Think about this for a second. How could one sacrifice pay for the sins of generations and generations and generations of human beings? One sacrifice. How can one sacrifice pay for many trillions, a countless numbers of, of human sins? One sacrifice for all? This is the point. A very unique sacrifice was required. A lamb. But not just any lamb, right? No ordinary lamb. There is no physical lamb spotless enough to atone for the sins of mankind. There is no mere human pure enough to atone for the sins of another man. It had to be a unique lamb. It had to be God's servant, the servant of Isaiah. It had to be God's one and only son, truly and fully God, truly and fully human, yet without sin. Hear this. It had to be a high priest who qualified to stand between us and God. First representing us on the cross as a man, and second interceding for us before God the Father in the heavenly realms. Only Jesus qualifies. Only this servant, only this lamb could do the job. And so is it any wonder as we come to the New Testament and we see John the Baptist, he goes out as the forerunner of this Messiah. He's making the path straight for the king. And what does he say? He's in the river Jordan and he recognizes Jesus and he says to those around him, he says, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
if this story doesn't overwhelm you, then wake up. Rise up out of the, out of the dust, God says. Pay attention to the good news of the gospel. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that's half the story. What about the lion? Let's turn over to the last book in the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi. And let's go to chapter 2. Very end of chapter 2. Look at verse 17. We've seen the lamb. Now what about the lion? Now the prophecy of Malachi is, of course, the final writing of the Hebrew Scriptures, right? Written down somewhere around the year 430 B.C. So to put that in context with what we just walked through, Malachi was written about 250 years after Isaiah's prophecy. And you know what that means, right? I get to put a timeline on the screen. Makes me very happy. (laughs) Just to help you with the dates. And because I love it. So Isaiah spoke about Judah's exile to Babylon in the future, because as you can see there, it took place about 100 years after he wrote. But here Malachi is writing after the exile has ended and the Jews are now returned to the land. So very different contexts. And just as Isaiah prophesied a a future stubbornness and disobedience among the people, now Malachi is talking about that same stubbornness and disobedience in the present tense because he's living it in that day. Now, if you know anything about the book of Malachi, it's, it's one of my favorites because the dialogue in it is this back-and-forth conversation between God and the people. And, and God's words are mediated by the prophet. So God speaks to the prophet, the prophet relays the information to the people, and the people respond to God, and back and forth we go. And this type of exchange is, is shown right here. It's typical in verse 17. Look at it. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, Malachi says to the people. You've you've worn him out. With all your flapping of your gums, you've wearied him. Yet you, the people, say, how? How have we wearied, wearied God? Malachi responds, in that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Now, what's going on here? This is the age-old objection. You still hear it today from skeptics. If God is real, and if God really cares about what's what's happening down here in this world, well, then why do wicked people prosper? God must love them because they're doing great. Right? And what's the correlating principle? Why are the righteous suffering so much? He must hate us because we're not doing well. Right? This, is the, this is the way the world, unfortunately, sees God in this very simple cause and effect way. They don't understand the complexity of our God right? and his sovereignty. They just say, well, if, if they're prospering, then God must love them. And since we're suffering, God must hate us. Silly, right? In Malachi's day, the Jews were apparently saying this. Well, it looks to us like God delights in evildoers because he doesn't seem to be stopping them. And he certainly doesn't seem to be punishing them. In fact, it looks like to us he's just plain not interested in justice. Now, you may have caught yourself saying that before. So we got to be careful not to condemn them so quickly. Sometimes we, we get that way, right? We're like, I don't get it, Lord. Why are these people who hate you doing so well? The point being, the people were saying, well, why should I seek to obey God if it doesn't get me anything? Especially if it brings me nothing but trouble... While others are getting away with it, you know what? Maybe I should join them. 
since they're doing so well. And the fact is, if you were living in Jerusalem in 430 BC, things didn't look very good. So they're not wrong on this. Where was the blessing and the prosperity that had been promised to Judah in the restored land? What happened to that golden age that they were told about? A return to Solomon's temple, to the golden age. None of it had happened in 430 BC. There was no prosperity. There was little food. There was a lack of security. There was high taxes. There was a corrupt priesthood. And the temple was completely disappointing. And all the while, the Persians and the local people groups that lived in and around Jerusalem, they were doing fine. They were the ones who were prospering. And they were doing so on the back of the Jews. So the question was, what's up with that, God? Now, you don't have to say it out loud, but I know we've all said that before. It's just the frustration of being a human being. We expect that if we worship God well, that we're going to get blessed, right? The prosperity gospel feeds on this, right? And Malachi says, really? You weary the Lord out with that kind of talk. You tire him out. You try his patience like a parent whose children just run around the house whining and complaining all the time. You try his patience. Your lack of understanding of who you are and who God is is astounding. Your lack of understanding of how holy he is and how sinful you are is breathtaking. So you really want an answer concerning God's justice? Do you really want an answer? Turn over to chapter 3 now. Here's the answer. Verse 1. Behold, look. I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Does that sound familiar? It's the third time we've read this. He will clear the way before me. Basically, Malachi is now riffing off of Isaiah, right? Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now, who is he referring to here? Who is this chosen messenger who's going to prepare the way for the Lord? This is John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. Really, if you think about John the Baptist, he is the last Old Testament prophet, isn't he? He really is. Remember how John's father, Zacharias, he prophesied about John when he was a baby. He said, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. And once the way is prepared, what's going to happen? Look back at verse 1. Once the way is prepared, what's going to happen? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if you, if you don't know the context here, you can easily miss, but Malachi is using ironic language here, a little bit sarcastic. In effect, he's saying, look, you want to know where the God of justice is? You really want to see him? You say you delight in him. Do you really? It says right there, right? The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Do you really? As you stand here before me, do you really delight in him? Or are you just flapping your gums? So let me tell you, he's coming. And I'm not so sure you're going to be happy when he gets here. Hmm. I know to the human mind it may seem like nothing ever changes. We can identify with this. Everything goes on day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. Nothing changes, and we all begin to wonder, is this really going to happen, Lord? We've all thought that before. 
But the point of this is God will not tarry forever. The Lord will come. And when he does, it's going to be sudden, Malachi says. And when he arrives, friends, I'm not sure you're going to be all that glad about it. Now, you've probably already figured this out, but Malachi is speaking of what we call the day of the Lord. And what he's doing here is doing the same thing that so many other prophets do. He's combining what we know looking back, combining the first coming of the Lord and the second coming of the Lord. Right? Obviously, this prophecy and so many others, it were partially fulfilled 2,000 years ago. Yeah, John the Baptist played his role as the messenger, and Jesus did come to his temple, but the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy will be at his second coming, when the Lord appears like a lion, and he comes to judge the world for sin. Look at verse 2. It says it right here. And who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? By the way, that's a rhetorical question. Nobody can. Because of sin, no human being is capable of enduring the day of the Lord. Because of sin, none will be able to stand in his presence unless God himself causes that man to stand. Pay attention to this. This is not about our will or our choice or a prayer that we said one day. If the Lord causes us to stand in that day, we will stand. That is our only hope. None will stand in his presence unless God causes it. How? By justifying that man or that woman. By declaring that man or woman righteous in his sight. Now, notice the grace of God in this. He's going to arrive suddenly, but not completely unannounced. And this is true of his second coming as well. He does send his messenger ahead of him in advance to let people know this is coming. I mean, this is like people, I've heard it compared to, you know, volcanoes that are dormant. You know, when it starts to rumble, scientists go, hey, pay attention. (laughs) Pay attention. This thing is uh, starting to bubble. And what happens? People go, eh, until it blows. And they die. Right? So he's going to send his messenger in advance. Hey, pay attention. Listen carefully. Clear the way. Make the road smooth. In other words, get ready. Examine yourself. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Lay aside your pride. Get rid of self-centeredness. Bring forth spiritual fruit. Why? Because the king is coming. We're all to live with that urgency in light of his second coming. The lion of Judah will someday come to his temple, and it will be sudden, like a thief coming in the night, right? He is God's servant. He is the messenger of the covenant. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will come to judge sin. So don't be caught unaware. Don't sit there and whine about your situation. Oh, look at how all the wicked people are prospering and poor me. I'm trying to worship God and I'm not prospering at all. Be ready. He's coming to clean house. John says his winnowing fork is in his hand. And where does his judgment begin? At the household of God. So be ready. By the way, before we move on, notice how verse 1 is about as strong a statement on the deity of Christ as you'll ever find. See how the speaker here is the Lord of hosts. Who's that? That's Yahweh. And he says that he is sending his messenger, John, and he's sending John before me, he says. And who did John go before? Jesus. And so Jesus is one with this person referred to as me, the Lord of hosts. Notice also, it says that the Lord will come to his temple. Who owns the temple? Only God. 
And so Jesus is said to be one with Yahweh right here in this passage in the Old Testament. Now back to verse 2. Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Look at verse 5. Then I will draw near to whom? You. For what? Judgment. Wow. Now, does that picture of Jesus look different than the lowly man riding on a donkey in Jerusalem? Two things the line of Judah is going to do in this day. For the elect, for true believers and objects of his covenant love, Jesus will be a refiner's fire. He will purify his people. He won't destroy them. He will purify them, cleansing them from sin. For the rest, however, for those who are not believers, who are disobedient and disbelieving, folks represented by the complainers from chapter 2, for those people, he will draw near for this one purpose, to judge them. To judge them. He declares judgment and condemnation. That, that's why they're not going to be so happy when he comes. Like, Where's the God of justice? Oh, he's coming. And for those of you who disbelieve, he will draw near to judge and condemn. It starts at the household of God, folks. Be ready. And if you peek ahead to the first three verses in chapter 4 of Malachi, you're going to see he lays this out really clearly. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming. What day? The day of the Lord. Burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, burned to the crisp with nothing left over. But, verse 2, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Could there be a more stark contrast between those two outcomes? It's the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah comes to judge. Now, the remarkable thing about God's word through Malachi is that he didn't send Messiah in the lifetime of any of these people. How many people are frustrated by that? Like, man, you're going to use all that really aggressive language and then you didn't send the Messiah during their lifetimes? It's going to be over 400 years before John the Baptist shows up on the scene. 400 years. And in the meantime, the Jews had to endure those 400 plus years without a true prophet in their midst. They were subjugated by both the Persians and the Romans. It was hard. But there's a lesson here for us. There's a lesson in this for us. Don't we sometimes look up and say, are you ever coming back? Don't we get impatient? We see everything in this really brief tunnel vision. We're like, why not now, Lord? It seems like a really good time. Are you coming back? It's been so long. We're growing weary down here. We're 
We're distracted. We're getting apathetic. And of course, we're warned in the New Testament that mockers will always be around to give us a hard time, right? They'll be saying, oh, you talk about Jesus coming back. Where's this coming? And they'll scoff at you and they'll make fun of you, right? Peter says that's going to happen. But then he says this, remember, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men, those who mock you and scoff at you. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Be patient. God will not tarry forever. The line of Judah is coming. Amen? Well, I want to wrap up by taking us back to Psalm 118 briefly, to that first Palm Sunday. If you have a chance this week, read Psalm 118. What you'll see is that it's a description of a a celebration of a great event, an unexpected victory over the enemies of Israel. And the picture that the psalmist gives us is of this long processional celebration. This is what they did in the ancient days. When you had a great victory, you had a big parade. And there's this long procession that's snaking its way through the city of Jerusalem, headed for the temple. And when they get to the temple, the leader at the front of this procession He asks permission to enter the temple. He says, open to me the gates of righteousness. He says, I will enter through them and I will give thanks to the Lord. I will give thanks to you for you have answered me and you, Lord, have become my salvation. And as the leader is allowed to enter into the temple and offer his praise, the psalm continues with these words. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You're like, I've heard that a million times. Where does that come from? Psalm 118. Now, interesting, those words are familiar to us, but the, the context isn't really that the psalmist is exhorting you and I to find joy in each and every day. There's a specific purpose here. It's speaking of a great victory when God delivers his people. Then comes verse 25. These are the very words shouted at Jesus as he rode through the city on that donkey. Hosanna, Lord, save us. Now, here's the question. If, if the Jews had just had a great victory in Psalm 118, why are they now shouting, save us? That doesn't seem to make sense, but here's the reason. It's because Israel had not yet seen her full salvation. She had not yet received her Messiah, her eternal Davidic king. So her full salvation still remained. Fast forward now to Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Guess what Israel's still doing? Still waiting. Still hoping that her full salvation is coming. It's true that they were living in the promised land. It's true that they had this big expanded temple that Herod had built. But they were still subject to the Romans. And they hadn't yet received her Messiah. They were still looking to be delivered. And so they shouted at Jesus, Hosanna, save us. Maybe this prophet from Galilee would finally be the one. And so the expectation grew that this Jesus of Nazareth would finally come and deliver them. But how would he do it? On a donkey? (laughs) Really? This lowly man on a donkey is going to deliver us? This man who would eventually be arrested and tried and crucified? comes back to the question of the day. Who is this guy? Can he deliver us? Or is he just another false prophet on a mangy animal? 
that's what the Jews in Jesus' day were dealing with. And that's the great question of Palm Sunday. And to answer that question about who he is, all we have to do is look at the prophets. What do they say? He is Emmanuel. He is our wonderful counselor. He is our mighty God. He is our everlasting father. He is our prince of peace. He is the righteous branch. He is the holy one of Israel. He is the Davidic king who rules over an eternal throne. He is the judge of the nations. Yeah, that, that lowly man on the donkey is all of that. Yeah, that man marred and disfigured and hanging on a Roman cross, he is all of those things. He is both the suffering servant and he is the messenger of the covenant. He is both the lamb who is worthy and the lion from the tribe of Judah. Friends, prepare the way. This week, make your hearts ready for his coming. I am excited that we get to celebrate twice more this week, right? On Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Prepare the way of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this morning once again for your word that that you have, have told us so many things in the Hebrew scriptures about your Messiah. As we look back on it, it's, it's amazing to us that you predicted so many things and then you brought them to pass. And we shouldn't be amazed by that, Lord, but we are because we're so finite, because our vision is so limited. But we're grateful for your prophets that you sent to deliver the good news the good news of the gospel that came through this suffering servant, this lion of Judah. Father, I pray as we, we get ourselves ready here on Palm Sunday and we begin to look forward to this most important week of the year, that we would really dedicate the time necessary to reflect on what it means, that we would be devoted to, to worship this week in recognizing what your son Jesus has done for us. And that we would recognize the great victory and the vindication that he has in rising from the dead. May we not take it for granted, Lord. Just because we've heard the story so many times, may we not take it for granted. May you make that story afresh in our hearts and minds this week as we worship you. Because you are worthy. You are the worthy lamb and you are the lion of Judah. We praise you this morning. Amen.